Chapter Twenty of the Directory of the Devout Life by F. B. Meyer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Twenty, Counterfeits, Beware. Matthew Chapter Seven, Verses Thirteen to Twenty-Seven. The world is full of counterfeits, and shams abound. Too often we paint and varnish paper to look like marble. We make paste jewels. We make of paper the soles of boots, and experts are deceived. There is great danger, therefore, of the same spirit creeping into the church, and our Lord, who knew the heart of man, warns his disciples against the counterfeits of true religion. That religious experience is a counterfeit which does not involve the denial of self. We must distinguish between the denial of self and self-denial. There may be self-denial which, so far from being the denial of self, leads to self-congratulation and self-aggrandizement. The daughter of a fashionable home may elect to forgo the gossip around the afternoon tea in her mother's drawing-room in order to visit an East End slum, but in her heart of hearts she may be exulting in an afternoon's freedom from conventional custom. She may be congratulating herself on the admiration which her presence may excite amongst the poor. She may be desirous of building up a reputation, and of extracting pity for her self-denying labors. In all this there is a subtle ministering to self, which is not easy to detect. But there is no symptom of the spirit of the cross, the straight gate is not entered, the narrow way is not trodden. The religious spirit, which is of great price in God's sight, must cut deep into the taproot of our self-life. Every religion has recognized this. A non-Christian Hindu told me at Calcutta that Hinduism demanded eight different steps in the elimination of the self-life, beginning with the love of woman and ending with the love of money. The Greeks recited the story of the choice of Hercules, that when his young manhood was budding he was assailed by Venus and Minerva, the former promising that she would lead him by a short and easy path to the enjoyment of all delights, whilst the latter, as Leonardo depicts her, demure and staid, in her dress of grey, offered him the stern tasks of duty, calling him to forego the life of self-indulgence. In Hebrew apocryphal literature there is nothing more beautiful than the sketch in the book of Estrus, of the city, full of all manner of good things, standing in the midst of a wide plain, entered by a single narrow portal, which could only be reached by crossing a narrow causeway, so narrow that only one could walk alone, with a raging fire on the right hand and a storm-swept water on the left. Every religion which has touched the heart of man has bidden him to enter in by the straight gate. The Lord's picture is very graphic. Each fresh generation seems to stand in a large open valley, full of hope and eager expectation, and each unit fully intending to make the best of the brief spell of human existence, which is all that is granted, and without the opportunity of returning for a second trial. There are two avenues by which that valley may be left, and our Lord proceeds to contrast the two gates, the character and breadth of the two ways, the number of travellers that frequent them, and their respective goals. The most popular of these two gates is the one that rears its lofty height in white marble, fair and glistening, whose ample space admits a never-ceasing procession of gay young forms, 
which fill the air with their songs and beat the earth with their dancing feet. Festoons of ivy and vine leaves are carved in the living stone, and gates that look like burnished gold stand wide. It opens on a gently sloping sward, enameled with flowers and crossed by devious tracks. Now and again the path expands into open spaces and woodland glades, but as furlong follows furlong the grass becomes barer, the flowers fewer, the track itself is less defined, the crowds become broken up into smaller and smaller groups, and these dissolve into individuals, until finally each finds himself in a land of pits and precipices, where destruction threatens at every step, whilst darkness which may be felt casts midnight shadows. No voice answers to the voice that piteously cries for help, no hand is stretched out to catch the hand that reaches out for succor. How wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But in that valley there is another aperture, a wicked gate, that might easily be missed unless looked for. This is so narrow that only one can enter at a time, divested of every encumbrance. The path at the head of which this straight entrance stands, is at first steep and difficult, paved with flints which cut the tender feet. It climbs the bleak hillside, on the one hand the beetling cliffs, on the other the deep ravine, and only a ledge to walk on. It is trodden, not by crowds, but by individuals. The idea of Christiana and her children is truer in the realm of fancy than in fact. But the end is glorious, for that path breaks out at last upon the uplands, where God himself is son. 1. The entrance to the life of discipleship demands an effort. The gate is straight. We need not work for forgiveness. That is ours by the free grace of God. We are not to work for salvation, but from it. We do not work to be saved, but, being saved, we work. There must be effort to relinquish effort to be still, and to await the strong hand of our Lord, lifting us up from the brink of despair, to lay aside every weight, to refuse the tendency to self-effort, to turn one's back resolutely on some darling sin, and one's face towards the new Jerusalem, to choose the path of separation and service. These call for effort, which our Lord compares to the passage of a straight gate. You cannot drive into it in a carriage, or carry through it your money-bags and your weights. 2. The continuance in the path of discipleship demands continuous effort. Narrow is the way. The world's religion is easy enough. Do as you like, is its motto. Be not righteous over much, is its law. You may go to church, undertake some branch of religious philanthropy, and observe certain fasts and festivals, only it must be at the dictate of your own whim, and be for your own self-pleasing. The path of the disciple, on the other hand, is one of perpetual limitation and restraint. He does not his own will, but the will of him that sent him. He anoints his head, and washes his face, not appearing to men too fast. But all the time he is under the strict law of Christ, which, because it is the law of love, is the most inexorable law of all. The upward path is lonely. Few there be that find it. In the days when Christianity has been most popular, the real disciples have been fewest. Always a little flock. Always 
not many are called. God called Abram when he was but one. 3. But the end is absolutely glorious, and more than compensates. They that tread that path saying no to self, because they are always saying yes to Christ, leave behind the valleys where the miasma broods and climb to the upland levels of life. They do not need to wait for the end of their journey to realize God's full gift of life. But here and now, at each step and each moment, as they are faithful to death, God gives them a crown of life. As they are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, the life of Jesus becomes more and more manifest in their mortal bodies. Each step forward is into purer atmosphere and further vision. It leadeth unto life. That religious experience is a counterfeit which does not produce good fruit. Our Lord applies this principle first to false guides. It was natural that, from speaking of the gate and way, he should go on to characterize the guides who profess to be able to guide the pilgrim feet by the right track to the right goal. He says, in effect, Do not judge by appearances, for they are very deceptive. The wolf, which comes to raven, may don the fleece of a sheep. Thorns may produce a little black berry, which, in the early spring, resembles the black grape. Thistles of a certain description will have blossoms not altogether unlike the fig tree. By their fruits ye shall know them. Primarily this does not mean that the doctrine is the tree, but the man who teaches the doctrine. And you can detect his true nature, not by remarking his words and acts when he is conscious of being watched by many eyes, but by the silent and unconscious fruit of temper, disposition, behavior, in the privacy of the home or amid the obscurity of daily commonplaces. A good tree bringeth forth good fruit, an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. But it may be replied, Are there not many among us who refuse the doctrines of the New Testament, but whose lives and characters condemn many evangelical professors? Does not the presence of such persons in our midst disprove these words of our Lord, and prove that the life is no true test of doctrine? No, because the very atmosphere we breathe is saturated with Christian and evangelical influences. We all owe more to our mothers than we know. The good in the persons whose case we are considering proves that they come of a godly stock, or had, like Lord Shaftesbury, a devoted governess or nurse, or came under the influence of a Christian schoolmaster. As boys they may have been taken to hear the truth as it is in Jesus, proclaimed by lips forever sealed in death. To borrow the thought of another, the momentum that carries the train continues long after the driver has turned off the steam. The tidal wave moves onward long after it has left the attraction of the moon. The radiance of the dying day lingers on the horizon long after the sun has set. On the whole, the worth and truth of the gospel have been abundantly attested all down the ages, by the myriad of noble characters it has produced, which have been as salt to the world's corruption, and as lights in its darkness. It is a solemn question for every teacher amongst us. Am I bearing good or evil fruit? What is the impression which I am producing on those around me? Am I a fruit-bearing branch like the true vine? If not, whatever my doctrine may be, I am running a serious risk of being cut down and cast into the fire. To save us from that fate, 
it is not enough to teach others the conditions of fruit-bearing, not enough to refrain from bearing evil fruit, not enough to be a neutral or a negative quantity. The failure to bring forth good fruit will cause us to be condemned to the axe and the bonfire. Many of those who condemn others for their heterodoxy and pride themselves on the straightness and strictness of their adherence to evangelical doctrine, but who in their criticism of others betray a terrible deficiency of Christian love, and in their domestic life give no signs of the sweetness and humility of Christ, will find some day that their fervid zeal for orthodoxy of creed, which has not been accompanied by orthodoxy of character and conduct, has not availed to secure for them the fate meted out to the worthless fruit-trees. Our Lord applies the same principle, next, to false professors. He shows how far a man may go and be lost. He may have a considerable amount of reverence and respect for the Lord's name. He is depicted as addressing the Master as Lord, Lord, and as avowing three times over that the name of Christ has been the talisman and charm by the use of which all the miracles and mighty works have been accomplished. Three classes defile before us, only to be rejected at the judgment seat of Christ, where those eyes which are as a flame of fire pierce the counterfeit disciple through and through. First come the prophets, not in the sense of foretelling, but of forth-telling, the message of salvation which they have never appropriated for themselves. Next come the exorcists, who have cast out demons of all others than themselves. Lastly come the wonder-workers. But each of these classes is turned away. Not only does the king not know them as they approach, but he professes unto them that he never did know them, and that their works have been the works of iniquity. Every work which is wrought in the spirit of vainglory, and for the sake of securing a personal reward, is accounted as nothing by the master. Yea, as worse than nothing, it is an affront to him. Its doer flouts his mercy and long-suffering, and acts as though he had never shed his blood, never expatiated his sins, never purchased his redemption. Do those who eulogize the sublime morality of this discourse, but refuse to admit the divine claims of the speaker, read all these closing words? If so, how do they understand them? Does the sanity which has characterized the Master's utterances hitherto forsake them now? Is he reliable as a teacher and guide only in dealing with the difficult problems of human life, becoming a mere visionary when, without one word of explanation or apology, he assumes the right to sit upon the judgment seat and utter the verdict of eternity on the quick and dead? If we accept the one set of utterances as the very essence of truth, why should we draw the line when he speaks as able to bid these false disciples to depart? This is he with whom you and I have to do and, I pray you, make sure work for eternity. If you are wrong, it is surely better to find out your mistake here and now, rather than after the die is cast. You may speak with the tongues of men and angels, give all your goods to feed the poor, and your body to be burned in your steadfast witness to the truth, but if you are not inspired by a divine love to God and man, it will count for nothing, and when once the Master has shut to the door, it will be vain for you to stand without and knock, saying, Open to us. The door will not open. The darkness will not be riven by a shaft of ruddy light issuing from within. The stern rejection will not be succeeded by a loving recognition.
Do you fear lest such a fate should be yours? Then be of good cheer. Those that dread it most are safest from it. Those who are most self-confident have most reason for alarm. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. There is no need to die before we can enter it. But here and now, as we with many fears and failures set ourselves to do God's will, may we enter the kingdom and become citizens of its metropolis, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from God being radiant with his glory. That religious experience is a counterfeit which does not secure contact between the soul and Christ with a faith leading to obedience. In any of those Syrian valleys which some may have visited, between Beirut and Damascus, it is possible to see wrought out the closing picture of his sermon. In the summer the soil is baked and hard with the intense heat, and any spot will serve equally well as the site of a house. No one can say whether his neighbor has built well or ill, and only the builder himself knows. But in the winter all is altered. The country is then exposed to sudden and heavy storms. The stiff breeze drives up the rain-clouds from the Mediterranean, which empty themselves in floods of rain, and suddenly the watercourses, which for months have been little better than heaps of stones, are filled with foaming floods from bank to bray, pouring down into the valleys and carrying all before them. It goes ill, under such circumstances, with the man who has pitched his slightly constructed house on the sand, taking no heed to dig down to the rock beneath, for the foundations are sapped by the rushing torrent, and the very sand is swept into new banks and beds. But the builder who has excavated to the living rock and grappled it in the lowest courses of his construction can look without dismay at the scene of devastation around. It comes not nigh to him. Only with his eyes does he behold and see the doom of the unwary. Such is the contrast between the man who hears and does not heed, and him who hears, ponders, and obeys. For, in the words of the Apostle, not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Romans chapter 2 verse 13. What searching words are these? We have all heard, but have we done? Are we hearers that forget, or doers that work? Do we continue in the perfect law of liberty? Have we ever come into personal and living contact with that stone, that tried stone, that precious cornerstone, which God has laid before the worlds were made for sure foundation. To believe about Christ is not enough. We must believe in Him. We must come to Him as a living stone, and be made living stones, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. Then, and in the impulses received from Him through the Holy Spirit, we shall proceed to build the structure of a godly and holy character, not with wood, hay, and stubble, but with gold, silver, and precious stones, and it shall grow into a holy temple in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. Is it to be wondered at that the people felt that the Master's words were fraught with a mysterious authority and power which were absent from the words of all other speakers? All men have borne witness to this same characteristic, which adds the greater condemnation to those who reject, but which communicates the pulse and thrill of the divine spirit to those who receive with meekness the engrafted word 
that is able to save the soul. End of chapter 20 and end of The Directory of the Devout Life by F. B. Meyer Recorded by Marianne Spiegel in Chicago, Illinois, April 2014